Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Today, guest co-host Hiroboga returns, and we are going to be talking about white space to return to yourself. I have been working on white space for a number of years now, and slowly I went from constantly being on this hamster wheel, wheel, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago where, you know, it was never enough and constant, constant and slowly getting off of that and then slowly learning how to trust having more space and being comfortable. So, you know, it's kind of a workaholic, total overachiever in becoming comfortable with white space. And it's actually ironic because I think when you go into white space, it takes tremendous courage and you feel very vulnerable because there's uncertainty, emotional exposure, and risk. And you also finally have the opportunity to really get to know yourself. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation I have with the lovely Hero Boga as we talk about white space and we talk about it in our own lives. She ta- she shares some of her childhood stories. And then we also talk about it in this world of parenting. So there's many different aspects you can take into it. It is a longer interview or conversation. So thanks so much for sticking with it with us. And before we go into it, I want to just do a shout out real quickly to Opossum Dreams. Yay you. I'm so glad this is your first podcast and you're hooked. Thanks so much for leaving an iTunes review. And for those of you still working on that darn website of mine, and I have a section in there for testimonials and stuff. So if you want to be featured on my website, send me an email, post an iTunes review, send me the copy of it along with a photo of you, and you can possibly be on my website. Wouldn't that be fun? I know it could be scary too, but come on, it'd be fun. All right, here's the conversation with Hero and I will circle back afterwards. Thanks so much for listening. Hero, hello and welcome back. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about white space and play and possibility because so often in our culture, it's about, you know, packing it in and packing in and I'm really good at packing it in. Um, But really myself personally and professionally working on having white space. So you were about to say a whole bunch of really good stuff. And I said, wait, let me hit record first. (laughs) So now I'll let you get started. Well, I wanted to start with a story. Um, The thing that I, you know, I mean, I grew up, I I grew up in India and it's an India that no longer exists because the pace of change has accelerated hugely since I lived there. Um, But one of the things that I'm really aware of is how much the rhythm of life here, and I've lived here all my adult life in North America, but how much the rhythm of life here um, goes against the grain of the rhythm of our bodies. You know, our bodies are much slower uh, than the pace that we set for ourselves. 
And so there's a constant conflict between what is natural and organic for us and what we insist on putting ourselves through. And the story I want to share with you is um, back when I lived in India and um, we had, uh, you know, we had servants. It was just that was the culture at the time. And um, one of our servants was going on holiday and sent was going to send his cousin from his village uh, to come and fill in for him. So the cousin was coming on the train and we went down to the train station in Calcutta where we were living at the time to go and pick him up. And when we got there, the train was just pulling in and this guy eventually got off and he was a total mess. He was crying. He was shaking. He was absolutely terrified. He looked like a terrified horse, you know, um, and we didn't know what was going on and we didn't have a language that we spoke in common. He spoke Bengali and neither neither I nor my then husband spoke Bengali. And um, so we finally found somebody to translate for us. And it turned out that he had never, he'd never been on anything that moved faster than a bullock cart that was the fastest mode of transportation he had ever been on. And a bullock cart, for those of you who probably don't know anything about it, moves only slightly faster than the pace at which you can walk because bullocks kind of amble along, you know. Um, So the speed for him was absolutely terrifying. And then that huge number of people in, in the train station was terrifying for him. And then we took him outside of the train station, wanted to get him in a car, and he just, he, he, that was it. He had had it. He wanted to go home, and he was not going to get on a train. And he wasn't going to get in a car, and he wanted a bullock cart to take him home. <laughs> it was just the saddest thing. And at the same time, I recognized that somewhere in us, there's always that part of us that wants to move at the pace that is natural for our bodies. And when we cram our days full of, of um, motion and noise and pressure and the need to be at certain places at certain times, we are constantly... Um, fighting our own natural rhythms. And for me, it just doesn't work. It has never worked, you know. So I decided a long time ago, I mean, I've been in business for almost 40 years, and a good part of it is because I think I'm unemployable. (laughs) I can't move. (laughs) I can't move at the pace that this culture sets for us, and I refuse to do it. And when I have tried to do it, I've usually gotten sick or um, been really unhappy. It just doesn't work for me. And I can't see, I don't actually see it working for anybody. You know, I mean, I've I've mentored thousands of people over the years. and, um, And the more that 
people recognize, the more that we recognize what our actual natural rhythms are and the more that we arrange our lives to accommodate them as best we can. You know, I mean, not all of us have the um, the luxury of doing that, but the more that we can do that, the easier life becomes and the happier we are. It sometimes means making hard choices. It means, you know, you don't grow your business by 30% or 50% every year. You recognize those rhythms of of expansion and contraction, of consolidation and movement, of stillness and 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 motion. But in order to recognize those rhythms, we have to slow down. If we're moving so fast that we can't hear ourselves, we can't hear our own bodies, our own thoughts, our own needs, um, then we're always running to keep pace with something that is foreign to us and isn't particularly uh, harmonious with with our lives or our inner beings or you know, or anything that makes us who we really are. So, yeah, white space. I mean, it's interesting because I'm a writer and um, I've been a book publisher and white space on, on the page is what allows the words on a page to really speak uh, powerfully because they aren't all crammed together visually we're able uh, to get a sense of the breath and the rhythm of the words on the page because of the white space around them. And I think that that's a very apt metaphor for what we're talking about right now. But it's so counterculture, isn't it? (sighs) Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yes, it is. Um, It depends on it depends on what culture you belong to. Um, you know, even here, there are pockets of, of cultural sanity and pockets where people make those choices uh, to live uh, in a way that that is spacious and harmonious and that allows for wholeness, um, but yeah, the the I think the mainstream culture is really set up um, to support the industrial economy. You know, I mean, I, I where I live, there's a uh, an elementary school down the road and a high school just across the street from me, and. I see these kids all come rushing in first thing in the morning and then there they are all day long from, you know, 8.30 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon and then out they come again. I can't imagine that sitting in a classroom for all those hours every day um, is particularly good for them. Um, I mean, certainly wasn't good for me when I was growing up. I I, I just I couldn't you know it it didn't make any sense to me because all my learning the the learning that, that I, I was I was so thirsty to learn, 
but in order to learn, I needed my own pace and my own rhythm. Mm -hmm. And they didn't match the pace and the rhythm of the school. Um, and I think what we're doing, starting with, with our educational system, is we are training people for the kinds of jobs that they're going to have later in life where, you know, as they grow up, they are going to have to be in a cubicle or in an office for so many hours a day, sitting still, sitting, um, uh, working in, in, within a very narrow framework. And, and yet we're creating a culture that creates these kind of battery people, like battery chickens, you know, where we cram people into these little spaces um, and expect them to perform um, in a certain way and to leave everything that makes us truly creative, generative human beings outside the office door or outside the school door. It's tragic. So I think that each of us has to choose what culture we want to live in and we create that culture because the ambient culture um, exerts artificial pressures to live in ways that are not sustainable for us as human beings. They're not sustainable for the earth. They're not sustainable for our environment. They're not sustainable. I agree. They're not sustainable. And, and I'm so glad that you brought in, you know, the educational system and, and, and the kids. And the other thing that I found with my own kids who are 16 and 14 is um, they, they have a fair amount of white space. But the mm -hmm. problem that we have is they have electronics. <laughs> and, right. right. And so instead of just being with themselves or maybe with a book, they can dive into social media or to their phones. And that is not white space, correct? No. No, it's not. It's not because I think, to me, the you know, I, I don't know that there's a definition of white space, but certainly for me, my felt sense of it is that I need, I need the space to return to myself. I mean, our, our lives are a constant negotiation between our inner being and our engagement with and involvement with the world around us. And that negotiation is what creates cultures, it's what, it's what creates societies, it's what creates... Uh, growth and progress and depth and uh, language and art and so many other absolutely marvelous things. But if we don't have a way of returning to ourselves and, and, and fully inhabiting ourselves, like really knowing what we're feeling, what we need, uh, what in any given moment we are capable of, then we can't bring our full selves into that engagement with this culture and the society around us, with the world around us. So what happens then is that we're constantly reacting to our world rather than engaging with it in relationship with it 
in a conscious, uh, mindful way. So we're reacting to the pressures of the world. And because we're reacting rather than acting, instead of being sources of generative sources, creative sources of the world in which we want to live, we simply get caught up in the mechanisms that have been set up already uh, and we keep perpetuating those mechanisms. So we get on a kind of treadmill and and nothing really changes, you know, and nobody is happy as a result of it. Uh, but we are not able to bring our souls, our best selves, uh, to that task of world-making because we can't bring our best selves to the task of self-making. Like, they have to go hand-in-hand, hand, right? Mm-hmm. Do you th- and electronics are a big... Um, it are yet another kind of rabbit hole of distraction. It's another way that we get pulled out of ourselves and um, and lose touch with who we are. No, it, the the phones are just so fascinating, and um, you know I love Apple products, and I have three, I think, sitting here mm-hmm. right in front of me as we're speaking. And I kind of like, ooh, there's the watch and how cool would that be? But then I did return to myself and I checked in and I thought, the last thing I want is my phone that where people can constantly get in touch with me. Because yeah. there are times I'd like to step away from my phone, my computer, the email, like all the different ways that somebody can come to me mm-hmm. and just be by myself or be with my family. Mm-hmm. And so when I thought about that, it was sexy to get the iPhone at first, but then I thought, no, this is an yeah. important boundary. Yeah. Good for you for having the wisdom to recognize that. I mean, I have an iPhone and I don't know why I have it because it's never on. <laughs> it's always on. I I have a landline phone at home and I use that and then I have the iPhone and it it lives in my car uh, and it's always off uh, except if I want to call somebody. So it's really there as a kind of emergency thing, but it's ridiculous for me to have it. Um, You know, it's one of those things that I got because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, but honestly, I, I never, ever use it. And I, for exactly that reason, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be connected. Like all of those connections have an energetic cost. Mm-hmm. And when we are available to everybody, then we're not available to ourselves and we're not available to the people that we really love because our energy is scattered to the winds, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't think I think here here's my hunch, and and partly because you know I have lived a very full life with very little wife space, and I've been through the years chipping away at it um, and creating more white space. But I do think that my hunch is that because we live in this culture where we're so into scarcity, we're rooted in scarcity, not enough, and fear that we don't allow white space because 
what will happen in that white space. Maybe they won't, you know, be able to build their business or maybe they won't, you know, if they're in the corporate world, somebody else will get a promotion over them. Whatever, you know, or I'm not doing mm-hmm. enough as a parent. I mean, these it's always the not enough. Mm-hmm. And instead of going in and checking in what is enough for me, you know, mm-hmm. what are the components that, you know, will allow me to thrive in my lifestyle that I want is more money, right? Is another 10,000, 20 or 50,000 going to change things, right? Will it really make it better? And I know there's there's a certain level that people need to get to, but it's really important to think like, okay, what do you really need or want for your life? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, I absolutely, I'm, I'm nodding. And I realize, of course, that you can't see me <laughs> nodding over the <laughs> Turn on your clairvoyant antenna, Chris. (laughs) Well, I think that's the essence of sovereignty, you know, is recognizing, knowing yourself, Mm -hmm. spending enough time with yourself to know what makes you happy, to know what you actually need, uh, to feel content and fulfilled and somehow contentment has become a a kind of um, stepchild in this in this culture you know it's as though well you know if you're content there must be something wrong with you maybe you're you know a bit slow or (laughs) whatever That, that somehow contentment means that you've given up uh, and ambition is everything. Um, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with contentment. There's nothing wrong with competition. Each of these, each of these energetic states has its place. But what happens is that instead of staying in its place, it becomes a kind of the central organizing principle of the entire culture and. When it does that, it becomes poisonous. So, you know, take competition, for example. You were talking about this sense of, well, scarcity and and feeling like if I don't do this, if I don't cram my day full, if I don't, you know, work those extra hours, I don't make that extra $50,000, I'm going to fall behind. Well, competition is a body energy in terms of energetics. It's a body energy. It's, it's, It's built into... Our physical DNA, <clears throat> we're animals, right? We're physical animals and, um, and competition for scarce resources is what, what got us as a, as a species, uh, to where we are in the sense that, you know, those, those who were best at foraging for nuts and seeds or, uh, those who, who learned how to, um, who had the keenest eyesight and could could you know grab um, a, a passing animal and 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 kill it for food uh, were the ones who got to pass their genes on. Um, so competition is a body energy. It's it's one of those things that you can't get past. You can't pretend it's not there uh, because it is built into our cellular structure. 
But when you recognize it for what it is, then you can play with it. You know, you can give it expression in um, baseball games or swimming uh, or, you know, any kind of of sport or competitive event uh, where it, it ha- it's become a kind of organized play within which that competitive instinct can express itself and, and, and it's fun and it's, you know, happy and, and people have a good time. Where it becomes a problem is when it moves out of that realm of a body energy and the mind takes over and the mind spins stories around, uh, you know, if I don't, if I don't get this new car or I don't make this extra money or I don't put in, you know, weekends and evenings at my job, uh, I'm going to lose everything. Well, that story isn't actually true. And if it is, then the life you've created is based on a lie. It's based on something that's completely unsustainable. And you need to find yourself a different environment in which to work, uh, one that supports you in living a mindful life, in consciously choosing what makes you happy, what makes you content, uh, what allows you to put your energies where your heart is, you know? Um, So I want to say something about the, I noticed a thought in my head yesterday because I was working on some stuff of, you know, in the end when clients work with me, what do they really get? And mm-hmm. and so I was thinking about that. And, you know, I do weight loss coaching and, and that kind of stuff, but it's not even so much the weight and the body image, but I do general life coaching or I do business coaching, executive coaching, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But really what they get is... I wrote it down and I don't know where my notes are, but it was like they get, they become happy. They trust themselves. They become confident in themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I remember there was a judgment when I wrote it down because it was really quite simple. I'll have to look for my note because it was so simple. I can't even remember, but I was thought, really, this is it. It was to me, there was this judgment of happiness. That's just so frivolous, but it's that. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And because as you said that, that's what came back up. But it's that, that, that real happiness, not from a purchase or, you know, even, you know, when you acquire new things or you achieve like, you know, the Olympic trials are going on. There is happiness that happens with that, but a different happiness is the happiness I'm talking about where it's just a, a contentment in your life, in who you are, right? Which I believe is really, mm-hmm. really sustainable. But isn't it fascinating that I had thought there was that judgment in the back of my head of, oh, this is frivolous. Is this really what people want? Yeah. It's interesting because all the noise, I mean, when you think about, you know, I, I am a business strategist among other things, and, um, and, and people come to me and they come to me with these very grandiose ideas. Not everybody, you know, some people come to me with these very grandiose notions of, well, I want to, you know, make a million dollars this year and I want to be on Oprah and I want to have a worldwide platform with millions of, of followers. And and my first question to them is why? What would be different in your life if these things happened for you? Because 
if it's not really what you want, if it's what you've been conditioned or programmed to believe that you want, then you can fling yourself at those goals. Uh, You can give them everything you've got, and you may even accomplish them over time. Uh, But you're going to feel really empty at the end of it because it isn't really what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, When you start, you know, when we, we, we begin to explore what it is that you really want, it's always qualities of soul. Like we're all here. We're embodied souls. We're incarnate souls. And we're here to express qualities of soul and to bring them into the creation of our world, you know, to shape our world so that it reflects those qualities of soul. And, um, and it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, making more money or... Um, or creating a a big, complex, beautiful business can't be part of that. But when when what you want is conditioned by somebody else's desires rather than your own, uh, you you kind of lose track of what's real and what's important. And ultimately, that's what matters, you know, it, the, the quality of your life, how the kind of sustainable happiness that you're talking about, which I call joy, mm-hmm. you know, that there's, there's a quality of joy that has nothing really to do with the circumstances of your life. Um, yes, you can be happy because you get invited to, the, to dinner at the White House or mm-hmm. something, and it can be very exciting. Uh, but there's a quality of joy that has nothing to do with those with those kinds of external markers, and yet it arises from that engagement, the relationship with yourself first, mm-hmm. and then from that inner sense of fullness, your engagement with your world, you know. And yeah, of course, that's the most important thing. It's funny how it's funny how our our culture, particularly entrepreneurial culture, says, you know, we've got to talk about the benefits. <laughs> the benefits have to be measurable. <laughs> says who? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, when I looked at my clients, you know, who I've worked with, and mm-hmm. in the end, they're happy. They they're successful on their terms, right? It may not be successful on somebody else's terms, but on their terms, right? They're, they, yeah. And success is such a trigger word. And then they also, they finally like themselves, right? And, yeah. and they treat themselves really well. And then, and that's the difference, I think, between striving for excellence and hustling for your worthiness. Like this, this not having white space and this working really hard and getting caught up, it's about getting somebody else's approval to uh-huh. say that, see, you're enough. And I, I've been on that yeah. road and it doesn't really work except leaves you exhausted versus when you're striving for excellence, it's this internal of, okay, what, where am I just passionate, excited and how do I want to show up? You know, and, and so for people who are making, there's, and when you talk about competition, I mean, that's so much a part of my world, mm-hmm. um, you know, and when I swam, I mean, there was, it was about the energy of, and I didn't realize this when I was eight years old, but 
the calm of the water for my soul. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Now yeah. I can I can get it without having to actually be in the water. <laughs> I can stand near water and <laughs> I can get that. But water's so important in my life. And so like when okay. I was in Chicago a few years ago, and and I love Chicago. It's my one of my it's my favorite city. I love it. But it was just kind of some frantic energy. And I looked at my girlfriend and I said, can we just walk over to Lake Michigan? And it was late. And she's, she's like, I'd rather not. And fortunately, we, we wound up at the river and we walked down the river walk. And that was enough for me to just, you know, with, with all that energy yeah. in the city to bring me down. So for me, swimming first started out as, well, it was a life skill. And then it was mm-hmm. just a safe place for me to be. Mm-hmm. And there were times when my ego got involved and it was so much about who I was based on, you mm-hmm. know, what kind of performance I made. And it's so interesting mm-hmm. because that was when I was the least successful as an athlete. Yeah. And when I got yeah. it back into... Because you can't bring your whole self to the act of swimming when part of your mind is wondering if you're going to get first place or second place or if somebody else is moving faster than you or... Right. Yeah. And oh, and this achieving whatever this thing is, is finally going to make me a worthwhile person. And then you achieve it, but you still feel like, you know, the not worthwhile person. So it was an interesting game. But when I really got back to my own terms and just love swimming and really wanting to challenge myself, you know, Mm -hmm. and come up against like all those little, the little people inside of me. I love that last week um, when you talked about Mm -hmm. that was that's when I swam my best when I just mm-hmm. got into the flow of what what is it what is the my body can, the joy of it and having fun and you know and and one so as we watch the Olympic trials or the Olympics this summer is that mm-hmm. the competition may look the same on the outside but I really mm-hmm. believe it's where is it rooted from and I loved how you said that organized play for competition right mm-hmm. is what makes us happy and content versus when it's a with our egos or the stories that we're creating and that you know that is that scarcity environment of oh well they're doing better than me so i'm not very good well the what you know you've mentioned worth and worthwhile several times in this conversation and worth is is not it's not a quality of soul it's not anything really it's a judgment Right? It's a judgment. It's somebody decides what is worthy and somebody else decides what is not. And then you measure yourself against those standards that have been established by somebody else in some kind of abstract way. And you find yourself wanting. So, worth is not real. I mean, there is value, there's intrinsic value. There's value in water because it quenches your thirst. Uh, it keeps, you know, it's an element. It keeps so many uh, things alive on this planet. Um, is there value in gold? Is there? I don't know. Is there? I don't know. See, to me, like gold has a value because we as, 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 a, as a species mm-hmm. or have assigned value to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't eat it. Mm-hmm. You can't bathe in it. You can't drink it. 
it's not going to keep you alive, but it is a medium of exchange because we have agreed that it is. It's not a particularly efficient medium of exchange. You know, you have to actually sell it to be able to get money for it, to go buy food if that's, you know, if that's what you need to do. But it has no intrinsic value other than the value of any life form. I mean, it's a metal, it's beautiful, it has qualities um, that make it unique. So in that sense, it has its own inherent value. But the worth that we assign to it, you know, which currently is what a thousand and something dollars an ounce, uh, is 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 artificially agreed upon. It's something that we have agreed upon. So there's a difference between intrinsic value and worth because worth is an artificial construct. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place. I mean, money, in that sense, is an artificial construct. It is something that we've all agreed upon, that we agree that a dollar is worth a dollar, uh, or if you know against other world currencies, it is worth so much, uh, and that we use it as a medium of communication and exchange, uh, and it's useful that way. I mean, in our culture is our society is way too complex uh, to re- to revert to an exchange economy. But when we start to confuse that agreed upon value for money with some intrinsic value and we believe we start to to think that having more money is going to add to our personal value it's going to make us better people or more acceptable people um we're taking something that belongs in one place and we're applying it someplace else and it doesn't make any sense and yet it causes all kinds of problems, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like putting water in your gas tank. <laughs> Saying, oh, water is so great. Well, I'm going to pour it in my gas tank. Right? That's very good. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And yet we do that all the time with this notion of worth. Mm-hmm. So then we're constantly, and, and of course, everything... Not everything, but those aspects of our society um, that benefit from creating these artificial um, standards to which we are supposed to adhere, you know, buy this, live this way, eat this, wear this, uh, and you will be acceptable. Uh, so they continue to benefit every time that we buy into that story, every time we surrender our sovereignty and our right to make our own choices to somebody else. You know, we're surrendering our God-given power, our sacred, soul-driven power uh, to choose who we are going to be and how we're going to live and what kind of world we want to help create. We hand that power over to somebody else we become slaves to conventions that we had no part 
in establishing and that and yet that we continue to support with our choices and our behavior. Well, that goes back to what you said about what white space is. White space is the space to return to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And 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 when we can, if we're so busy, you know, constantly hustling for the next thing, or and not really going in and checking in with ourselves, right? And I love how you said that. You know, worth is not a quality of a soul; it's a judgment. I mean, yeah, it is. It is. Well, you know, the other thing is that I mean, part of how we discover who we are is in relationship to the world around us, right? Especially the natural world. And I was thinking about this the other day because I was thinking about how I grew up. I mean, I grew up in a big city. I grew up in Bombay, uh, which at the time was relatively, you know, it was about 6 million people, I think the population was. And now it's more like 20-something million people. But it was a big city. Um, but it was, all, it was still a low-tech city, you know, relatively low-tech city. I mean, I, we didn't even have a phone until... Nobody had a phone at home, and they were only in, in offices until I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. Um, so it was low-tech, and there wasn't that screen of technology between ourselves and the world around us, but there was the city. But we had a place up in the mountains that we went to every weekend and all through our holidays. And in India, you get lots and lots of holidays. Like we got three weeks over uh, the October holidays. We got two months in the summer. And so we would go up there. And because it was in that particular time and, and place, Nobody told me where I could go or what I could do. I wasn't watched like a hawk. Nobody helicoptered over me. I wandered up and down those mountains all by myself for years until I hit puberty. And then kind of the the cultural constraints came slamming down. But that shaped who I am, that my, my... How I understood myself had so much to do with myself in relationship to the wild and in relationship to the natural world because it was really wild. When my kids were little, we lived on a a little tiny island um, here in the Pacific Northwest and they wandered. You know, we had our house was on kind of 10 acres of land and it was all surrounded by town land and they were gone all day long. I didn't see them until they came in for, you know, to get fed uh, and then they'd come in when it got dark again. And I think that there is that kind of white space where you have the freedom to be out in your world, uh, to to know who you are in relationship to the rest of the natural world. Because as I said, we are animals. And if we don't know our animal selves, how do we know ourselves? You know, we're not just sort of talking heads on a stick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a kind of spaciousness that has to do with that freedom to roam. And I think that that has disappeared from our lives largely um, because now, I mean, I have friends 
who have young children. My child, my you know, my son. I have a granddaughter who's now five, um, and it's just it. It's no longer safe, or parents no longer feel that it's safe to let their children even play outside mm-hmm. on the street with other kids because you don't know. You know, the world has changed. Um, and because of that, I think there's a a kind of spaciousness, a kind of freedom, a kind of white space that we have lost touch with uh, that disconnects us from the natural world. And by disconnecting us from the natural world, it disconnects us from our bodies as well. No, it's it's very interesting. Um, there's been a lot of talk on social media with articles about kids and you know, kids being able to go out into the street and play, but kids don't, you don't see kids play in the streets and you don't see kids going to the local parks or even to the their school playgrounds to play unsupervised mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, where things are always so scheduled and then you add digital devices to that as they get older, where it's mm-hmm. constantly scheduled and to be able to have that downtime and to learn how to have that space so that you can be with yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't cultivate boredom in (laughs) our culture, right? And yet, to me, that's the place from which your creativity and your imagination emerge. It's like when you've got that white space and nobody is out entertaining you or, Mm -hmm. or scheduling you within an inch of your life, you have room to think your thoughts, to hear what you're feeling, to uh, to follow your curiosity, you know, to find bugs in the grass. And I mean, I spent, I can remember this, I spent an entire summer sketching grasses up close because that's what I was curious about that particular summer. Um I can't, I, I just don't see that happening anymore. And, and I think that there is such a loss as a result of it. I don't know if it's still there in the more rural parts of, of North America. Um, I don't know if this is primarily an urban phenomenon. Um, but I don't see, yeah, I don't see kids out on the street. I see them in little packs, you know, when they get out of school. Uh, but they're mostly walking to their cars or their parents' cars or, you know, walking home in a pack. They're never by themselves. Uh, and that's probably a safety issue now. But there's a loss of... Uh, there's a loss of freedom and spaciousness that I don't know how we go about recovering for our kids. So, I mean, do you, do you, are your kids still young? Well, my youngest are 16 and 14. So they, we live in a community where you ride bikes and we're in a big, and we're in one of the biggest bike capitals in the U.S. Um, uh-huh. So we're a university town. We live in a small town in Northern California. So, um, but we are considered old Davis parents because our kids do. I, I, I'm like, we live in Davis. They have a bike. They are capable. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem with them doing that. Um, this generation of kids, it's interesting. They bike less. Parents drive more in our mm-hmm. town. And uh, it's really not necessary, like in my belief. Um, when they were younger, I did want them to bike with each other and stuff. But now as teenagers, 
they can bike independently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that part's really important. Um, and I see, you know, even in the youth sports world that I see, everything is so geared up and, and, and again, it goes, I think it's all rooted in scarcity, the not enough, you know, mm-hmm. am I doing enough for my kid? Will my kid, you know, be able to be successful? And my thing has always been just calm down. <laughs> they're kids, mm-hmm. they're little, this doesn't define their career. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I think swimming is important because learning how to swim is an important skill set. That's a life skill mm-hmm. in my book. Mm-hmm. And then what happens if they want to become, you know, whatever level of a swimmer, that's, that's up to them and their mm-hmm. family values. So, but it doesn't have to happen when they're seven years old. Right. And, yeah. and that's a hard one. I mean, it's interesting because like in the program that I run, our seven and unders, we stop, we don't let them swim from like mid-October until March. And we've had parents be really upset that we won't offer programming. And we mm. swim outdoors. And I and I finally will say to them, I said, well, what organization says we don't want your money? Because that's essentially what we're saying. I mean, we're, we've said mm-hmm. this isn't good for your kids long term. Mm-hmm. But we're also mm-hmm. saying, I mean, I could create programming and say, okay, we'll just benefit. But it's not good for your kids in the long term. Right. Yeah. And that will usually get them to go, okay. <laughs> they they kind of stop from that franticness. Yeah. But I've had people yeah. leave and go to a different team because they yeah. want their kids to advance. Well, it's so interesting because that becomes it's a, it's almost as though your children become another notch in your belt of, of worthiness, you know? Mm-hmm. That if if my kids are acing the swim team uh, it makes it means that I'm a good parent, mm-hmm. or you know, it, it, that's exactly. And it's the so destruct. Yeah, it's so destructive of relationships because it means that you don't actually pay attention to who your child is and what allows your child to be most fully herself or himself. Mm-hmm. Well, and so much of that is just being hands off. You know, giving them room giving them room to discover what really fires them up, what they're excited about, giving them room to change their minds about that because, you know, curiosity is curiosity and it doesn't stop when they, you know, with one thing, right? So letting, letting kids be kids, letting them be curious, letting them explore, that's their job at that age. And not tying them, not tethering them to your own sense of identity because your children are not you. Mm -hmm. And the choices that they make have nothing to do with you. You know, they're making choices because that's how they learn and that's how they grow, right? So, yeah, your relationship with them is one in which you've taken on a certain responsibility, you share your values, you you guide them, you pay attention to what to who they are and you support them in becoming more of that. But but you don't lay out a path for them and you don't you don't use them as kind of badges of honor for yourself. Because if you do you are doing both yourself and the kids such a disservice and then they grow up not being guided by their own internal GPS, but seeking always to 
to meet somebody else's standards, to get approval from out there, to get love from out there, to get, you know. It's that perpetual cycle that happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Nope. It's, it's as though everything in our culture keeps pulling us outside of ourselves. And so it takes, especially with, I mean, you brought up the electronic thing a few times too, because it's such a powerful force in our culture now, not just by, not just because of the constant connection, but also because it's a, it's programming for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kids are being programmed at earlier and earlier ages to believe certain things about themselves, about the world around them. Um, and, and, they can only learn discernment by paying attention to how things feel to them. And they can only do that when they are connected to themselves and not that connection isn't interrupted either electronically or otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, you know, the, you're right. I think these digital devices really take us out of ourselves. It goes into that compare and despair even further because there's images and lives and stories that we create on that. And and I know myself as an adult who's very, not very, well, I would say I'm very aware of stories and what mm-hmm. goes on inside of my head and how I can get tripped up at times with social media. And then you mm-hmm. have young minds who don't really know. And, yeah. and they can look at this photo and think, well, why isn't my life look like that? Yeah. But there's another piece to it too, you know, which is that electronics by their very nature move at a speed much, much faster. Like energetically, the speed of electronic communication is much faster than the speed of the human body. So what is happening when we're plugged in in that way is we're speeding up or we're attempting to speed up in order to keep pace with this other frequency, Mm -hmm. which is not a human frequency. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not an animal frequency. It's a technological frequency. Um, So for us to try and match that frequency is exhausting. It's one of the reasons why, you know, you've kind of fallen into the rabbit hole of Facebook land for long enough. You come out of it kind of disoriented and punchy. (laughs) At least I do. Yes, I do too. (laughs) Because there is an energetic frequency that it emits. It's interesting. A couple of days ago, I... um, I bought a set of, I'm, I'm going traveling in, in mid-August, and I bought a set of wireless headphones, that uh, absolutely wonderful noise-canceling headphones. The sound is amazing, and I was listening, I've been listening to my own playlists that I've been listening to for years and hearing musical elements that I haven't heard ever before because just because of the quality of sound of these headphones. And I thought this was the coolest thing ever. Now, I don't ordinarily listen to music a whole lot. Like, I, I, I need lots of silence. This is just me, you know. Um, 
when I listen to music, I just listen to music. I'm not listening to it as a background thing. But I was listening to these headphones, and I went for a walk, and I was listening to them, and I listened to them kind of in the evening, and then I'd had enough, and I put them away. But that night, I couldn't sleep because that frequency, my brain was trying to vibrate at that same frequency as the frequency of the electronic, whatever, Mm -hmm. however many megahertz or kilohertz or whatever it is that that it was at. Uh, And I had to, like in the middle of the night, I finally just got up and sat down and cleaned out that energy and, and got back to myself and got my body back to its own rhythm and its own frequency. And then I could sleep. So there's something about, like we're trying to adapt physically and physiologically to frequencies that are much faster than the human. And we're doing it all day, every day, and it is exhausting us, wearing us out. No, my my kids are grumpy. And I've just this year made a rule of not looking at my phone when I first wake up in the morning. And um, because I would notice that, especially on a Saturday or Sunday where there's a lot less structure, and I would just mm-hmm. pull up my phone and say, oh, what's happening on Facebook? And then an hour would, would go by and I was still on Facebook and I'd be so grumpy. <laughs> so yeah. I I don't, you know, I will check in, but I really, and it has to be a deliberate practice because it's really easy to go to the phone, right? Mm-hmm. Versus checking in. So when I wake up now, I really work on checking in with me in the mm-hmm. mornings. And that mm-hmm. I find has been a lot more grounding than yeah. when I would go to my phone. Yeah. Well, for me, I have this practice with social media that I have with everything, you know. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm saying social media, but really the only social media I spend any time on is Facebook. Uh, But if I, like, I consciously enter and exit. So I make a conscious choice to be on Facebook. And when I do, I attune to my soul. And I attune to my intention. My intention is always within that encounter to bring those qualities of soul that I am here to experience and express into any engagement that I'm in, any encounter that I'm in. So I do that with Facebook too. You know, it's like my intention is to bring... um, an energy of love and discernment and um, delight, uh, beauty, joy, whatever it is. Um, and I do it in a number of different ways. And as when I feel myself losing the capacity to hold and um, radiate that those those qualities, then it's time for me to stop and withdraw from that engagement, just like it would be if I'm out for, you know, uh, at at a party or something, and I can feel myself start to lose my own sense of self and my own capacity to be present, then I'll leave. Mm -hmm. It's time to go, you know? So it's the same with with Facebook. So I log off and, and I'm gone because if I can't be 
present and whole, then I'm bringing into that encounter, instead of bringing wholeness into the encounter, I'm bringing fragmentation, and that's not what I'm here to do. That is, I love that. I'm going to practice that. I love consciously enter and consciously exit. Yeah, for everything. I I find that with everything, you know, whatever I'm doing through my day, there's a, there's, I'm like, I'm just conscious of I'm entering this now and whether this is, you know, sitting down to a meal or this is doing the dishes or this is, uh, you know, writing a, um, a blog post or whatever this is that I'm entering it and I'm bringing a certain energy to it and it is bringing a certain energy into that encounter as well. And then when it's, you know, when it's time, then it's time to close that encounter and energetically separate from it so that you can be fully present for the next thing, right? Oh, I love that. And that's what, I mean, that's, that is all white space, those, those transitions from Mm -hmm. one state, from one activity to another, from one state of being to another, all are facilitated by having enough space to do it mindfully mm-hmm. rather than just kind of hurtling from one thing to the next. So while I was waiting for you to call in for the show today, I you know, thought, oh, I mean, there's that being productive. I can do this or I can answer this email. Or I could take a look at this thing that somebody emailed me and wanted me to review the draft earlier in the week. And then I thought, no. I just want to be here and be ready for when, and I had about 15 minutes, but be ready Mm -hmm. for when hero calls me. I want to be in that space because if I was thinking about something else, my brain wouldn't be here. My energy wouldn't be here with you today. And, and again, these are the small things that I try to do. And then I've been learning. They are not small. (laughs) They are not small. You know, anything that you do that, brings you fully into your presence is the most powerful thing you can do. It's kind of like when you said, you know, well, what what happens to my clients when they work with me is they end up happier with a sustainable happiness and it's not not doesn't seem like a big thing. It is a it is the thing. <laughs> it is the thing and that that choice that you make to take that 15 minutes to be present rather than to answer another email or check in on Facebook, that choice brings your power and your presence into whatever it is you're doing. I mean, it's, it's what I do. It's what I've done for 40 odd years, you know, mm-hmm. before every client call, I sit down and I it used to be, I would, and maybe a half hour or so before and now it's more like 15 or 20 minutes but I sit down and I clear my inner space I connect with my own soul I attune to the soul of my client I attune to the soul of their business if it's a you know if the, if the call is going to be about business um, and I spend that time establishing the field within which our work is going to take place. And because of that, there is enormous power in what happens in those sessions. And then after the session, again, I spend that time closing up, 
you know, saying, energetically saying goodbye, uh, releasing what needs to be released, looking at anything that came up for me through that session, doing my own kind of inner work, and then I'm done with it, you know. So 15 minutes before, 15 minutes after, opening and closing, and then I'm available for whatever the next thing is. So those things are so important. They're the foundation for that life that is sovereign and free and generative and generous and of true value, intrinsic value. I love it. Well, Hero, thank you so much for coming back today. It's been such a joy to speak with you. Oh, thank you, Corinne. This is this is such a treat. It's a fun way to start a Friday morning. I'll tell you. <laughs> there we go. I love it. All right, my love. Thank you. Have a beautiful weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm going to have to do a mini-sode just about my thoughts because we've already hit well over the hour mark and I want to respect your time. A couple things just that she said that I just loved. The rhythm of your life versus the grain of your bodies and really tune into that. And the more that we can recognize what our natural rhythms are, the easier our life becomes and the happier we are. And remember, it's not a frivolous thing, even though there's this voice in the back of my head that can really judge that. And white space, it's the space to return back to yourself. Give yourself that gift. And the big thing is giving yourself permission to give yourself white space. And it may take small space steps like that 15 minutes while I was waiting for a hero to call in for the show. It could be other things in your life. Maybe when you wake up in the morning and not going to your phone. And as she said, those may look like small things, but they're quite big. So I'll leave you with that. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide.